Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Well, good morning again. There are there are some famous unfinished building projects uh, at different places in the world. The Sagrada Familia in Spain and Barcelona. Uh, this has been under construction since 1882. It ebbs and flows. It stops for a long while. It starts again. And now it's slated to be finished in 2026. Then there is the National Monument of Scotland. Um, this was a memorial for the Scots who lost their lives in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, this construction began in 1822, but they couldn't raise enough funds. And so in 1829, they stopped after they had gotten 12 columns, and there are still 12 columns there. The Sathorn Unique Tower is a 49-story tower in Bangkok, Thailand. It was supposed to be a luxury condominium uh, project. They got 49 stories built during the 90s when the economy was booming, but then in 97, everything came to a crashing halt, and now there's no electricity It's actually called the Ghost Tower. It's just an abandoned building there. So from Spain to Scotland to Thailand, all the way to Rock Hill, South Carolina, the Panthers (laughs) practice facility and headquarters remains unfinished and I believe will remain unfinished from what I hear. Finish the job. The job has started The rebuilding needs to be finished, and that is very similar to our theme in Zechariah today. So I invite your attention to the Old Testament prophet of Zechariah. We are doing the minor prophets, and this is the next to last one. Next Sunday, Malachi will be the last one. Zechariah is about finishing the rebuilding of the temple. God's people in the Old Testament, northern kingdom was Judah, southern or northern kingdom was Israel, southern kingdom Judah. This is toward the southern kingdom and uh, they had been in exile in Babylon. And then they started, some of them started to return to Jerusalem. And after they returned to Jerusalem, they were going to rebuild the temple. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah fit in right there. They, this is what we call post-exilic prophets. It's after the exile. They've come back, and now they're supposed to rebuild the temple. God wants his house, and that's what the temple was in the Old Testament. It was a place of worship. It was a place where God's people could meet him, and he wanted it to be rebuilt. And Haggai, which Corey uh, spoke on a couple of weeks ago, uh, told us about that, about the call to rebuild. And now Zechariah is very much related to Haggai. It follows along with it. Zechariah has said to the people, or is going to say to the people, 
Now that you're back, I want you to rebuild not only the temple, but rebuild your lives. It's not just about getting brick and mortar up. It's about rebuilding your lives, and that's what we're going to focus on today as we look at it. So you see the setting on your outline, if you're following along there. After God's people had returned from exile in Jerusalem, the prophet Zechariah called them to return to him. So return to Jerusalem, yes, now return, return to me. And this ancient book reminds us of the importance of true spiritual renewal, not just external actions. Zechariah is a really interesting book. And Zechariah is also a really hard book. <laughs> it, <laughs> as a guy who took it in seminary, <laughs> it is a hard book. And you read commentators, some commentators, you know, famous commentators, Martin Luther and others say, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> I'm going to solve it all for you here in these 35 minutes. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, I'm not going to solve it all. I, I would love to, but there's just not enough time. <laughs> um, but what we're going to do is I, I do want to give you a quick overview of what Zechariah is about. And today, the only thing we're going to have time for is to hone in on three of its major themes. So rather than my giving you the overview, uh, I want you to watch this little video, this video from the Bible Project that tells us what this book is about. This will let you see uh, what it's about. The book of the prophet Zechariah. The book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we're told in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai together challenged and motivated the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. It has a fairly clear design. There's an introduction which sets the tone for a large collection of Zechariah's dream visions. And that's concluded by chapters 7 and 8. And then this is followed by two more large collections of poetry and prophecy. Let's just dive in and see how the book works. It begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and not be like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets, which landed them in exile. And so now the returned exiles respond positively to Zechariah. They repent and humble themselves before God, or so it seems. The next large section is a collection of eight nighttime visions that Zechariah experienced. And just to prepare you, these are full of very bizarre, strange images, a lot like your dreams. The idea that God communicates to people through symbolic dreams, it's very old. It goes back to the book of Genesis. The dreams of Jacob or Joseph or Pharaoh, these gave meaning to current events at the time, but they also gave a window into the future. And so Zechariah has his own dreams now, and they've been arranged in this really cool symmetrical design. 
The first and the last visions are about four horsemen each. They're like rangers patrolling the world on God's behalf, and it's a representation of God's attentive watch over the nations. Their report is that the world is at peace. And in Zechariah's day, this refers to how God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon and bring peace. And so the question now arises, the 70 years of Israel's exile are almost up. Is now the time for the messianic kingdom in Jerusalem? And God responds by saying that he's determined to fulfill those promises, but he leaves the question of timing unanswered. The second and seventh visions are paired because they're both reflections on Israel's past sin that led up to the exile. So the second vision is about these horns that symbolize the nations that attacked and then scattered Israel, Assyria and Babylon. But then these horns or empires are themselves scattered by a group of blacksmiths, an image for Persia. The seventh dream is about a woman in a basket, and we're told that she's a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. And then this woman is carried off to Babylon by other women who carry the basket flying with stork wings. This is so strange. The third and sixth visions are paired as they're both about the rebuilding of a new Jerusalem. So a man is measuring the city. It's an image of God's promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and become a beacon to the nations who will join God's people in worship. And then the sixth dream is about a scroll that flies around the new Jerusalem, punishing thieves and liars. The idea being that the new Jerusalem is a place that's purified from sin by the scriptures. The fourth and fifth visions are at the center of this collection, and they're about the two key leaders among the returned exiles. So Joshua, the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. So Joshua had been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes, but then those are taken off and he's given new clothes and a new turban, a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. And then an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, he will lead his people and Joshua will become a symbol of the future messianic king. The other vision is about two olive trees that supply oil to this elaborate gold lamp, which itself is a symbol of God's watchful eye over his people. And these two trees symbolize the two anointed leaders, Joshua and then Zerubbabel, who's leading the temple rebuilding efforts. And God says that success will not come to this new temple if it's the result only of political maneuvering. Rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's spirit. The visions come to a close with a bonus vision from the prophet, and it picks up the themes of the central fourth and fifth visions. It's Joshua, the high priest again, and he's given a crown and presented as a symbol of the future Messiah, who will also be a priest over God's kingdom. And then Zechariah closes it all out, saying that all of these visions will be fulfilled only if the current generation is faithful to God and obeys the terms of the covenant. And so altogether, these three visions emphasize how the coming of the messianic kingdom is conditional upon this generation being faithful to God, which leads to the conclusion of the dreams. It's another challenge from Zechariah, and a group of Israelites come, and they've been mourning over the former temple's destruction for nearly 70 years. And they ask him, is it time to stop grieving? I mean, is God's kingdom going to come very soon? And Zechariah again reminds them of how their ancestors rejected God's call through the prophets, which led to the exile. And so he challenges them too. He says, this generation will see the messianic kingdom only if they pursue justice and peace and remain faithful to the covenant. So in other words, Zechariah reverses their question. He asks, are you going to become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's coming kingdom? And that question is left just hanging there. The people don't answer and the book just moves on.
And so we come to the final sections that are very different from chapters one to eight. Each section is a kaleidoscopic collage of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. So the first one, chapters nine to 11, describe the coming of the humble messianic king who's riding a donkey into the new Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. But then all of a sudden, this king, he's symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel. And then he's rejected first by his own people, but then also by their leaders who are also symbolized as shepherds. And so God hands Israel over to these corrupt shepherds and it raises the question, will Israel's rejection of their king last forever? In the final section, chapters 12 to 14, say no. It's another mosaic of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. And they depict the new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. It's very similar to the same themes in prophet Joel or Ezekiel. But then God also will confront the rebellion within the hearts of his own people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, he says, so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they have rebelled and rejected their messianic shepherd. The final chapter concludes with the new Jerusalem as the gathering point for all of the nations. And then this city becomes a new garden of Eden and there's a river of living water flowing out of the temple, bringing healing to all of creation. And that's how the book ends. And so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder the connection between chapters one through eight and nine to 14. And the point seems to be that this future messianic kingdom of the book's second half will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant the point of the first half. Reading the book of Zechariah is a wild ride. These visions and poems are full of startling imagery and they do not follow a linear flow of thought. And that's part of the point. It's like history and our lives. It doesn't always fit into neat orderly patterns. But the prophets offer us glimpses of God's hand at work, guiding history towards his own purposes. And so ultimately, Zechariah invites us to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about. I think that's a pretty good summary. <laughs> and I don't think I could have said all that in eight minutes. <laughs> Well, let's look at three truths that are central to this book. I want, as we start walking through it, the first one is this. God is passionate for his people and wants to establish his presence among them. This book is about God. This book is, this confusing, hard book is about a God who sees his people separated, wandering, needing help and needing him and he wants to be near them that's why he wants them to rebuild this temple and that's why he wants them to rebuild their lives chapter one opens up in the eighth month of the second year of darius the word of the lord came to the prophet zechariah son of barakiah the son of Ido. the lord was very angry with your ancestors Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. You return to me, and I will return to you. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. 
we skip down to verse 16 of chapter 1. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Again, remember when... When the Babylonians came in and when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, you couldn't live there. They didn't live there. They were taken off into another nation. They lived in exile. It was going to last 70 years as they had read in the prophets. And now that they're coming back, it's, it would be just like a, some of the war-torn countries today that have been bombed and destroyed. You've got to rebuild the infrastructure. And this is what God is saying. I am going to see the infrastructure rebuilt. We are going to see the temple rebuilt. I want you to rebuild the temple. And why did God want to do that? Just to have an edifice? No, he wanted to rebuild the temple because in that day, for them, that was the place they worshiped. That was the place they met God. That was the place where God revealed himself and his presence to people. And that's why the temple was so important for them. Now, fast forward a few hundred years from the time that this was written for an even more powerful manifestation of the presence of God. Uh, actually, I skipped verse 17 there. Let me read that. Proclaim further. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again flow, overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. John chapter 1, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you translate that word there, that that phrase that I have highlighted in blue, made his dwelling. If you translate that more literally, it would be pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent among us. It's um, think about the the connection here between these words and the Old Testament. Of course, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, but there was a Greek translation of it called the Septuagint. And in that translation, the noun form of this verb is the word that was used for the tabernacle, which came before the temple. The tabernacle was the predecessor of the temple. The tabernacle was God's building tent for them before they were able to actually build the physical temple. And it's where God met his people. Exodus 25, verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. So here's the implication in John chapter 1. God had a dwelling with people in the Old Testament. It was first the tabernacle, then it became the temple. But now, when we come to the person of Jesus, now God is saying in a more real and a more personal and a more dynamic way, I'm going to dwell with you. The word became flesh, and what did he do? He made his Dwelling. I love that. <laughs> Jesus decided to pitch his tent. God pitched his tent through Jesus in the person of Jesus so he could be with us. 
We've just entered this season of Advent. Focus on this this month. Try not to focus on the the gifts and the lights and the food and all of that. Focus on what this season really means. God making his dwelling among us. Back to Zechariah. Second truth about God that keeps coming back here over and over is that God is not interested in mere external actions, but in true purity and justice. It was great that the people were back in their land. It was great that they were going to physically rebuild the temple so they could have a place to worship God. God had rescued them and God was going to restore them back to that place. But he wanted to make sure that they knew that their only task was not just to rebuild the physical structure. The first eight chapters, um, according to one commentator, Mark Boda, challenges the community to reflect deeply on the definition of restoration and not equate it, not equate restoration to the completion of the temple, but broaden the definition to include spiritual and social renewal. In other words, spiritual renewal has to accompany physical rebuilding. God is calling his people or was calling his people then to a renewed relationship with him and to love him and to love their neighbors. It would not be enough for them to go back into their land and continue the same sinful life that resulted in their being exiled to begin with, right? So, yes, build that temple, but... Don't just build the temple. Build your life on Christ, as we will see prophetically. Well, chapter 7, for instance, let's look at a few of these verses. This is mainly in chapter 7 and 8. We see these. Chapter 7, verse 8. Look, look at the things he calls the people to do, the things they needed to address. And let's ask if we need to address them ourselves. The word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint. And would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. Over in chapter 8, verse 16 and 17 is a good summary of the call that God was making to them. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all of this, declares the Lord. And the same thing is true today. This is a principle that works its way all through the scripture. God is not only interested in external good deeds. 
God wants changed hearts, changed lives, true purity, moral purity between us and him, and also true ministering to other people in love and humility and justice, not not just uh, going through the external motions of religion. And this is important because he talks about truth and he talks about uh, that. And I, I'm sad to report that we have a thief in our midst this morning. I'm, I'm even more sad to say it's one of our staff members. It's our assistant pastor. Corey Mode is a thief. Um, he's a good guy most of the time. A couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned, he was preaching on Haggai, and I um, had already begun studying here for Zechariah. And Haggai and Zechariah are really closely related to each other. So, as we're you know, we pray together regularly, and we talk about we talk about the sermons coming up. And I I asked him, and I'd already thought I, I was far enough in my study at that point to think. How, how are we going to really, really apply Zechariah? And I thought of what is one of my very, very, very favorite verses in the whole Bible. Maybe my favorite verse, Matthew six thirty three: Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so I'm talking to Corey, and I'm saying, Corey, have you had any thought about how you're going to apply Haggai? And he said, yeah, I was thinking about Matthew six thirty three. And if you were here for that sermon, you know that he stole my application three weeks ago. But we're going to forgive him. This is what God wants us. He wants us to have priorities on him, priorities on his kingdom. Think about what he says, for instance, along this line about not just being external, but being internal. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. That's an external action. Don't murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is what? Angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Matthew chapter 6. Giving is a great thing. But notice what true purity in giving is. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Giving is great. Giving is important. But have the right motive in doing it. Well, we're looking at large truths about God in this book. First, God is passionate for his people. And he wants to establish his presence among them. Second, God is not interested in mere external actions, but in true purity and justice. And then the, the final one this morning um, we're going to come to, but before I put that one up on the screen, I want to remind you, we've used, we've used this image a few times in this series to help, uh, help everybody understand how Old Testament prophecy works, how these writers, how these prophets who were speaking and they got, it got written down how it works. There, there, there are different 
elements to their prophecies. They are speaking to the presence. They're speaking to their people right then. And this is often overlooked by people. People often are always looking for the the ultimate fulfillment and there's there. But the vast majority of what's found in the Old Testament prophets is a direct address to the people of their day and the near future for them, what's going to happen to them in the near future. But even as they're making that prophecy, there is also the distant future in view. And let me put up a, a slide that shows you what that distant future looks like in general terms. And again, these are general terms. And anything we say about prophecy in the future has to be done with a measure of humility and admitting that nobody knows every single thing. <laughs> the distant future to the prophets looked like this. They looked out at the coming of Christ. And sometimes they're looking out at the first coming of Christ. There are many things in the prophets that talk about when Jesus came. But there are also some things in the prophets that look to what we call the second coming of Christ. That is when he returns from heaven to set up his kingdom on this earth and then after a time, usher us into the eternal state. So there's there's these images of the coming of Christ. And we talk about the kingdom of God, for instance. The kingdom of God has been uh, incipiently growing. And in fact, it, remember when John the Baptist was preaching and Jesus came along and he said, repent, why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near So the kingdom of God was beginning to break in through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus taught his followers to pray, what? Your kingdom come. And and he was talking about the rule of God. And and all through the church age, the kingdom of God is, uh, uh, is upon us. But it's not fully here. It's it's like an already not yet. It's already here. It's real, but it's not fully here because there's still sickness and death and war and destruction and all of that. And one day when his kingdom is fully realized, that's not going to happen. And that is what we see as the prophets develop. They're looking out to this day when God's kingdom is going to be fully realized And within that, and this is as far as we'll go on it today, good Christian believers and churches have some disagreements about some exact timing. And you can be orthodox and you can believe the scripture and hold slightly different views on this aspect of it. But our teaching and preaching believes that at the second coming of Christ, God is going to usher in what is called the millennium. It's a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And then it's going to usher in, after that, an eternal state with a new heaven and a new earth. And again, there's, there's uncertainty about a lot of this, about the timing and how it all works. But here's, here's the thing. As you read the book of Zechariah, You read things that he will say about Jerusalem and what it'll be like and the things that will happen. And it's just, it doesn't all come true in the early, in the present, uh, the near future for them. And it also 
is not all about just the final eternal state. Things that are going to be true. There are going to be people living on this earth that still will not receive Christ's rule and reign until that final battle when he establishes his victory. And then at that point, there will be no more opposition. That This is what we're seeing in the prophets as Zechariah develops. Now, having said all of that, let's look at the third essential truth in this book. God will bring his powerful rule to earth through the Messiah. Chapter 9 to 14 are very different than chapters 1 through 8. Here, the lens of prophecy zooms out into the more distant future. And several times, several times, the, the prophet Zechariah speaks of things for them to look for in their king. And I'm going to point those out, and I'm also going to point out where we see that come true in the New Testament. So a lot of this has already come true. A lot of this is being, has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and we believe every bit of it ultimately is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, for instance, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Is that language familiar to you at all? (laughs) You think about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem when Jesus told his disciples, go find the donkey that hadn't been ridden on. You know, what, 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 what will happen? Verse 10. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. When Jesus came um, in chapter 11, uh, verse 13, uh, the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Is that familiar to you? So here's the, here's the king that's going to come in. Your king is going to be humble and he's going to come in on a donkey to Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ did that at the triumphal entry. Here's the 30 pieces of silver that they're going to sell him for. And that's what Judas sold Jesus for when he betrayed him. How about chapter 13, verse 7? Awake, sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. Does that image strike you at all? Remember when Jesus was being arrested? Remember his disciples who said, oh, we'll never deny you. We'll always be with you. The shepherd was about to be stricken. And what happened? The sheep scattered. When Jesus was arrested and then put to death, his disciples fled away. Chapter 12, verse 10. And again, these these things were written hundreds, five, six hundred years before Jesus was ever born. Chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication, they will look on me, the one whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Indeed, as Jesus hung on the cross, he was pierced. His 
side was pierced for us. But now look ahead, chapter 14. This chapter that closes the book, it's an amazing chapter. All the prophets talk about the day of the Lord, this great day that's going to bring a mixed a mixed result for those who don't know God. It's going to be suffering and separation and rejection and punishment. For those who know God, it's going to be blessing and reward. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. Half of the city will go into exile. Verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquakes in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. That's the distant future still for, for Zechariah. We don't know how near it is to us, but that day is going to come. When he is going to come with his holy ones and he is going to return. Again, remember, we're seeing the first coming of Christ and now he's talking about the second coming. That's what Zechariah 14 is about. It's when Christ comes back and again, we believe he's going to set up his rule. He's going to set up his rule and he's going to rule. And look, look what the descriptions are of that period. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be only one Lord and his name, the only name. Skipping down to the end of the book and the end of that chapter, on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. That is going to be an amazing day. <laughs> and everything that Zechariah spoke either has already come true or is in the processes of, a process of coming true or is going to come true. And it's amazing to see how God inspired these prophets to tell us about things like Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey or his uh, uh, disciples betraying him and scattering or being pierced in his side. And one day he's going to return in glory. So here is God's word for us this morning. Repent and look forward to the powerful, beautiful reign of God. Repent. Look at your life. Ask the question, am I ready? Am I living a life that's honoring to God? If not, it's time to repent. It's time to admit 
that you're not living that kind of life and you need God, you need Christ in your life and you turn to him. So let me just ask you three application questions as we wrap it up. Put it in the form of a question. Question number one, can you see the glory of Christ in this? This Christmas season is a great time to bow down and worship. Think about the songs that we hear. We hear them year after year after year, and we can get so used to them. But there's some great words in in Christmas songs about bowing down before him. And one of the greatest, obviously one of the greatest musical pieces ever written was Handel's Messiah. And you think about the Hallelujah Chorus that keeps repeating, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Would, would you like me to sing a little bit of that for you? I don't think so. King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. Hallelujah. Bow down and worship him. Bow down and worship him this season. Secondly, are you ready for his coming? Are you ready for his coming? The first way to be ready for his coming is to ensure that you know Jesus Christ personally, that you have acknowledged that you are sinful and separated from God because of your wrong, and that in his love, what Jesus did by dying on the cross, that that's all you need for salvation. That you're not going to try to earn your way to heaven or turn over a new leaf. You're going to just humbly fall before him, repent of your sin and say, here I am and put your faith in him, in Jesus. That's the free gift of salvation that he offers. And that's that's the way to be ready for his return, to receive him as as your savior. And for those of you who are followers of him, who have put your faith in him, The only way to really answer this question is to ask, what does my life look like on a daily basis? What does my life look like on a daily basis? Am I living a life of purity and dedication to Christ? Let me ask you one last question. Will you help others get ready? We help others get ready. Life has many demands for most of us. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is so important that we have to find a way to share it with others. We have to find a way to get out of our comfort zones. It takes time. It takes guts. It takes commitment. It takes prayer. It takes heart. It takes the filling of the Holy Spirit. But you can do it if you're willing. And the Holy Spirit will fill you to do it if you're a Christian. Sir Ernest Henry Shackleton led three British expeditions to the Antarctic. And on one of them, he was driven back um, and he had to leave some of his men on Elephant Island. He, He was separated from them from the boat. There was large pieces of ice separating them. And he told them, I'll be back. I will come back for you. He left them there with a few supplies, but not enough to last for long. But he was going out to explore more, and he said, I will be back. And so when he left, 
the huge pieces of ice started coming together to block his ability to get back to them. And they told him, you'll never, you'll never be able to get back to those men. You'll never be able to rescue them. And he's like, I, he, I promise them I can't, I can't imagine not getting back and not trying. So he, he pushed his little small boat up close to these, uh, pieces of ice and unexpectedly a little area opened up where he could navigate his small boat through there and he did it and when he got there the men were ready they were packed they had their goods they got on the boat with him they got back out to safely just in time as this ice was doing like this because otherwise just in a few more minutes it would have crushed them and he he said to one of them you you were packed and you were ready for me, right? And he answered this, yes, we never lost hope. We believed you would come for us even though circumstances were unfavorable. You had promised and we expected you. So every morning we rolled up our sleeping bags and packed all our equipment that we might be ready. They were trusting that he was going to come back for them. Believer in Jesus Christ, he has gone. He came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again, he returned to heaven. And remember in John what he said to his disciples before he died, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and if I go, I will come again. To receive you to myself. And that's our promise. And it may sometimes seem dark. And it may seem impossible. But he's coming back. And it's up to us. To be ready for that. To be ready for him. To wait for him. That's a promise he is going to keep. That's a promise we can build our lives again. That's a promise. That will end up in great results for his followers. And that's a promise that is consistent. With the message of the minor prophet Zechariah. Repent and look forward to the beautiful, powerful reign of God. Amen. Let's bow our heads together, please. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.